0: Going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR.
1: Oh, hi, friends. How's your uh, Friday going? Yeah, my voice was trying to leave me yesterday during the show, and then it decided to to run off into Never Never Land. So I apologize for that. Uh, I will do my best to not talk at all over the course of the weekend and hopefully uh, be stronger come Monday. On that note... Did I miss anything? Apparently, I might have. Uh, I actually was away from the radio most of the morning. I come in and and there's this, were you listening? No. I was actually helping Aaron out with some marking. And so I come in and Kalen Ford was on with Danielle. Oh, okay. And then I started getting eviscerated on social media saying that I must stand for the same things that Danielle stands for. Yada, yada, yada. To which I I had to say, I I can't actually pass judgment on an interview unless I've heard it. So I wanted to wait until I actually heard it. And I did listen to it. And that's where I was during the Friday free-for-all. So I apologize for not being with you for that. You all know the story of Kaylin Ford by now, the UCP candidate in Calgary Mountain View. But right around the time the writ dropped, she dropped out of the race. She knew what was coming: a piece out of Press Progress where someone had leaked Facebook Messenger conversations to that outlet. You've heard some of the comments. You heard what uh, Kalen had to say during Danielle's show. The question then becomes, why was she given a platform to tell her side of the story? I'll give you a few of my thoughts in just a few minutes, but I wanted to talk uh, broad-based about this with Rachel DeCoste. Uh, She's uh, very well-known in these circles. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon.
2: Happy to be here.
1: My first question, first and foremost, I think is... Do you think we should have heard Kaylin Ford's uh, story in a long form like we did on the radio? Or does her story tell itself through the social media posts that she, uh, not even posts, but the messages that she made?
2: Any person of color in Canada is very familiar with how racism works. We don't have in Canada the crosses that we burn on people's lawns. We don't have nooses that we leave on people's uh, workplaces. We have discussions where we discuss things that are inherently give a a hegemony to race and place whiteness ahead of everybody else. So, when uh, she reveals herself through Facebook or through social media or through an interview, it's pretty much all the same thing. I, I think it's just, you're talking about a difference of medium, and to me, it's all the same. Now, you can also maybe add that when you talk long form on the radio show, when mm-hmm. you only have the interviewer to respond, that's a one-dimensional a two-dimensional discussion. When you expose it on social media, you get a lot of people who can respond or ask questions and maybe have a wider breadth of questions to choose from.
1: Is it important to have someone, whether it's of different color, different background, uh, different, different sexuality, whatever the case may be, whenever that issue is brought up, to be able to understand both sides of it so that you do have that contextual conversation rather than uh, what happened today?
2: There is no doubt in any situation that having diversity at the table brings a better discussion. So if you had an all-white jury deciding on whether somebody is guilty, some, you usually have a different result than you have a, if you had different people in a jury that's discussing something. So, of course, um, having somebody at the table of a different race or a woman or another minority could change the discussion if... That minority has an equal voice at the table and is not afraid of speaking their mind for fear of losing their job or their position. Is
1: there anything that Kaylin could have said or would have said that would have allowed her to, I don't want to say eviscerate herself from the comments or the the messages that were brought up, but um, make her more believable, I guess, if that's the the right term, or is there anything that would allow her to maybe um, clear her name, I guess?
2: I think she's already spoken her mind and been very, very clear uh, that she's worried about um, racial, um, about white people being outnumbered, and she feels like a certain group might be the people that will outnumber the white people faster. Um, I want to just add that uh, North America or Canada, as we know it, used to be an aboriginal majority society. And white people did outnumber aboriginals. So that that's already happened. So if people of color became the, the majority again, it would be a reset to what it was originally. Um, so she's afraid about minorities taking over, um, and she was very clear about that. I don't know how she can undo that. Maybe that anxiety um, is accentuated by a religious um, fear I don't know how you can come back from that. You pretty much was you were very clear.
1: One of the things that I take away from it all the time is you have to own what you say on social media, whether or not you think it was taken out of context or not. Your context is going to be different from somebody else's and if somebody if you think somebody's taking it out of context, then you have to own that. Do you get the feeling that she owns it at all?
2: From the little i seen and read, I haven't heard the whole interview. It feels like she is non-apologetic about it. Um, I will commend her for being brutally honest about how she feels. It's a lot easier for people of color and minorities to point out discrimination and racism when it's laid out for us. It's a lot harder when we pretend like, oh, I misspoke. You know, my assistant tweeted it wasn't me or other excuses that we hear over and over again. Um, So that's my answer.
1: In terms of next steps, uh, what would you say as far as... Um, this discussion and and where do we go from here? Because that that seems to be the polarizing part of it is that you have some who are saying, "Hey, it's great to have that context to which she she alluded to." At the same time, there are those who are saying we need to. Uh, there there are those who are saying we need to fire Danielle Smith for having her on the radio. Period. Um, it, how do we con- how do we make this conversation uh, more wholesome? I guess.
2: I don't I don't begrudge any media for giving for airing um people who have unpopular views publicly i think it's an important discussion that frankly canada is uh far behind having lived four years in washington dc um we are far behind in having those difficult dis- discussions or courageous discussions about race in our country so i don't fault anybody for giving her airtime what I would fault them for is for when she expresses stuff that should be, holes should be poked in that nobody said anything. Um, and it's funny, I would, I, Daniel Smith, I, because I live in Ontario, I haven't heard her name uh, mm-hmm. often since she ran for office. But in 2012, she had several candidates in her Wild Rose team say something that was incredibly unpopular and discriminatory towards gays or people of color. And, what, and so that's not new. But when we see that kind of prejudice, we have to call it out. That's how we show that we are more inclusive, how we are more intelligent, how we are Canadian, frankly. And what I would fault her is back then when somebody said something about, I, as a white guy, I can represent all my constituents, but the, my opponent, who's a person of color, he can only represent his own um, ethnic group. That's what he said. And she did not rush to bump him off his ticket and i think that's what really hurts as a canadian born and raised in this country that's supposed to be about justice and fairness and equality and charter rights is that when somebody says something that's clearly discriminatory that it's met with silence that it's not challenged right then and there and i think that was uh what danielle smith did in 2012 when she ran she did that at the interview uh recently and that's what really shows that we have a big problem that we need to discuss. So mm-hmm. when you hear something, when you see something, if you are a moral person, you have to call it out right then and there.
1: Agreed. Rachel, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rachel DeCoste is motivational speaker, software engin- engineer. She's trilingual. She's got a Bachelor of Computer Science at the University of Guelph. And a whole bunch more. She's very well spoken on that. Racheldecost.ca, if you want to learn more about her. Or you can go to Twitter at Rachel underscore So We'll talk a little bit more about this in just a second. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. All right. So, now that we have that out of the way, uh, I want to give a little bit of personal thought on it because some, a lot of people have been asking, do you stand with Danielle? Do you stand with Kalen? Who do you stand with? Pick a side, McFarlane. Do it. All right, so here's... Give you context first. I've listened to the interview. Uh, I didn't want to... I didn't want to judge it until after I listened to it in its entirety. And again, that's where I was during the Friday free-for-all. When I listened to it without the context of the past, there were some things to consider. One is the allegations that Kalen made against this Kareem character... Need to be looked into. Now, keep in mind they are allegations, but this is the slope—the uh, slope that we're going down when it comes to the back room. Who's who's playing the uh, the puppet masters? Who is behind all these different campaigns? And it's no different than what we're talking about with the Jason Kenney and Callaway campaigns and were they colluding together and all that kind of stuff or who's in it with the anti-oil sands pipelines, that kind of thing. There's all these nameless and faceless organizations that to Rachel's point earlier on, we need to start calling them out too. Number two, Kalen Ford does come across as a very smart person. I don't think anybody can deny that just the, the thing or how eloquent she was and how she was able to keep her wits about her during the conversation. I thought you can commend her for that. Now that brings me to point number three, which is the internet is forever. Everything you say, everything you post will be used against you in the court of public opinion. Full stop. Whether you think you're right does not matter. That's why before you hit the send or the tweet or the post button, you better read it through because you don't know who's going to be reading it down the line, whether it's big, bad government or whether it's somebody who's going to lurk in and break, you know, uh, utilize it for their own good. And this is exactly the same thing. The fourth point, we heard a lot about her story, but we didn't hear much about the actual content to the messages. That's why I can't personally stand up and be okay with the idea that she was on with Danielle because she did not apologize. She did not have any kind of regret. I am all for having a diversity of voices on a radio station. I said it before on this program and I'll say it again. There's no such thing as a smear campaign when they're using your own words against you. Own your words own what you say, and if someone has taken it a certain way or out of context as you think it is, then you better be ready to apologize and explain yourself. I've yet to hear an apology for those comments. So far, the only thing we've heard about from Kalen is about how it was a smear campaign. She prefaced the whole thing by saying press progress is simply an arm of the NDP. I don't think anyone's denied that. I don't even think the NDP or Press Progress can deny that, really. But so far, I've heard no denial of her even using those words and certainly no apology for them being taken out of context. As far as I can tell, she could say, I regret the things she said, or she regrets the things she said, but is it only because she regrets it because it got out in the open in the first place? That becomes the question. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. A lot of back and forth during this provincial election campaign on a number of different fronts, whether it's jobs or the economy or health care or this week it's been education. Healthcare has been a big one. And as a result, global news reporter Emily Mertz has been working on her weekly Alberta election fact check series. She joins us now to talk. Surgery wait times. Emily, thanks for the time today.
3: Thanks for having me, Joe. It's always a pleasure.
1: Did surgery wait times increase under the NDP is the focus of this one. Uh, What'd you find?
3: So this one was interesting in terms of timing because uh, we started looking into this claim when we saw a tweet from Unite Alberta last week, which is, of course, the official Twitter account for the United Conservatives. Um, and so they posted this graphic that showed uh, the claim under NDP mismanagement, surgery wait times skyrocketed. And they quoted open heart surgery wait times going up 50%, cataract surgery wait times going up 30%. Hip replacement and knee replacements going up as well, so we were already looking into that. And then um, yesterday, two studies were released uh, from CIHI, which is the Canadian Institute of Health Information, and also from the Fraser Institute, um, with a study that was looking at wait times for needed surgeries and how that impacts lost wages. From province to province and both those studies confirmed these numbers that in fact wait times for key surgeries um, uh, have gone up in Alberta between 2014 and 2018.
1: What are the experts saying about this?
3: So the experts, one of the experts that I spoke to who was perfectly named for this interview, Dr. uh, Professor (laughs) Kneebone, um, he says that this is a problem across Canada, various provinces have this issue and that we uh, provincial governments are spending a lot of money on health care and wait time and on wait time specifically and wait times are not going down. So obviously growing population, aging populations are stressing the systems, but he says just money at at the at the system isn't going to help. He wants he says some solutions that different um, countries and provinces are looking into are putting more money into prevention. So in Europe, you see this a lot. So uh, keeping people healthy, um, proactive approaches so that they don't actually have to use the health system for treatment as much. Another option would be to look at efficiencies, which is something that we've heard in the system. So um, bureaucracy, red tape, um, making sure the money that we do put in is going to frontline services um, as opposed to other things. I'm
1: wondering when it comes to population base versus doctor or surgeon base, if that's something that weighs into the discussion, is our population does continue to rise, but, and as a result, we're going to see that natural, I guess, increase in the number of surgeries that are needed. And are the number of doctors keeping pace or the number of surgeons keeping pace with that population growth?
3: Yeah, it's an interesting point. I didn't specifically look into the numbers of doctors per population. Um, what is an interesting point that Dr. Nebone brought up was that simply saying, you know, um, adding more doctors or adding a uh, chicken to the egg question or adding more operating room hours isn't necessarily on its own going to help. You need to look at those in conjunction with one another. So. Right. In Alberta, operating rooms, some of them aren't, he says, aren't operating, you know, are only operating between 8 and 12 hours a day. So um, some of the political party leaders that we spoke to suggested extending that, getting we have some operating rooms that aren't in use, let's open them more, get them working on those surgeries that we have those long wait times for. Um, but Kneebone says, okay, it's not necessarily as simple as that. Those surgery, those operating rooms need to be staffed by surgeons, mm-hmm. nurses, x-ray techs anesthesiologists you know the whole gamut so it's sort of a as i mentioned a chicken in the egg question
1: absolutely i mean it's a it's a not a one-dimensional approach and so i'm curious are the parties coming up with one-dimensional approaches or are they actually uh saying hey we got to take a full look at things
3: yeah, that was interesting, too, because of it was so timely with the studies being released. A lot of political uh, party leaders were giving their suggestions as to how their party, if elected, would approach the situation. So uh, Rachel Notley, NDP leader, has already announced that they would spend another $90 million, uh to further reduce wait times. Um, she also pointed out that uh, there are areas where wait times have gone down, uh, including radiation for cancer treatment and urgent um, hip fracture uh, repairs, which has gone down um, as well in the province. So that was Notley's approach. Um, Jason Kenny would like to uh, streamline, find efficiencies. And also he suggested looking at a Saskatchewan model that um, looks at... Uh, allowing private surgical clinics to bid on public projects. So in a way that would incorporate that bidding process into the publicly funded system. And then um, the Liberals and the Alberta Party uh, say they would like to look at efficiencies. Um, they praised our public health care system, but said there perhaps are ways to, um, to more efficiently uh, review where the money's going and find out where those bottlenecks are.
1: For more on this, you can head to 770chqr.ca or globalnews.ca as well. I'll post the link up on my Twitter at Calgary Today if you'd like to take a look at it as well. Uh, Emily dove into that one. Thank you so much for the time today.
3: Of course. Thanks for having me.
1: Emily Mertz over at globalnews.ca and one of our splendid online journalists. And one of the things, unfortunately, with today, the way that it unraveled, one of the things that I did want to talk about, the Alberta Liberals, coming out of left field and saying, hey, we're going to do away with income tax or the majority of such and make an HST out of the deal. I think I want to talk about that on Monday. So many issues that we can talk to. Hopefully we can keep the train rolling on Monday. All right, approaching 542 now on your Friday drive home. Hope, Hope all is going well on your commute to wherever you happen to be listening from. A lot of people, well, I shouldn't say a lot of people, Albertans seem to always buck the trend, don't we, when it comes to Earth Hour. And Earth Hour is happening this weekend, 8.30 till 9.30. I don't know if we're just, we have, I always joke about us having that kind of chip on our shoulder. It's a good kind of chip, I think, in most cases. It's like, hey, it doesn't matter what government is going to do. We're going to power through and we're going to make it happen. That being said, I think we also have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder in terms of we could look in the mirror on from time to time and say, maybe we can clean up our act a little bit. And so the, the act of defiance that we sometimes have with Earth Hour is kind of funny. Now, that being said, there might actually be a little bit of science to what's going on here. Uh, when you read the headline, switching off the lights doesn't actually go far enough. I was kind of intrigued. and So to talk about why he says that, Seth Wines is a Ph.D. candidate studying individual carbon emissions at the University of uh, British Columbia. Seth, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. I had to laugh a little bit when I was reading through the story, and you said right off the bat, turning off the lights is actually one of the least effective ways to save energy around the house. I want you to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, so it always
4: jumps out to our minds, right, because we see the lights so often, we turn them off so often, um, but the fact is, especially if you've got LED lights on, they're fairly energy efficient, and there are just other big users of energy in our house that really um, you should tackle first if you are interested in either energy or, or climate change.
1: If we wanted to make more of an impact on a personal level, what would you, would you say would be like maybe the top three things that people might take for granted or don't think about in their day-to-day processes?
4: So um, my research has shown that some of the real high-impact actions are avoiding air travel, living car-free and eating a plant-based diet. And so, yeah, things like meat consumption, all of the energy going into that, all of the resources going into that are kind of hidden from your eyes, unlike a light bulb. Um, So definitely those are some things that can have a big footprint.
1: How about around the house? uh, Things, you know, whether you're plugging things in, should you be unplugging everything before you leave the house? Those kinds of issues.
4: Yeah, that's a great question. One thing that I like to share with people is just set your laundry machine to a cold water temperature. It takes a lot of energy to heat up water. And that little switch requires, you know, very little effort on your part. And for the most part, you're not going to notice the difference because modern laundry detergents and machines are really good. They can handle cold water. So I'd go ahead and do that. You can use... um, Hang dry your clothing instead of using the dryer. That's also a good one. Turn your thermostat down just a couple of degrees in the winter. But the ones that are really going to last are the ones where you don't have to make it into a habit. Go ahead and buy energy-efficient appliances. um, Install insulation in your home, that sort of thing. And then you're going to make savings all the time without you having
1: to constantly be aware of it. Well, Earth Hour might be looked at maybe as, "Hey, this is more of an attention thing and and trying to get you to think about it." At the very least, is it misguided in a, in a sense as well? Is it, uh, a it's usually during the evening, and if it's cold out, like here here in Canada, it gets uh, it can be pretty chilly out. So why would you turn off the lights and turn off the heater and everything else? In, in at that time of day, even beyond that, is it's you got other things that you can get to at the end of the day.
4: You know what. Like I said, lights are a visible change. This is all about symbolism, right? And so it is a good thing to engage in if you allow it to also reshape some of your other habits or if you're using it to send a message. I would say, pair that change. Go ahead. Turn off your lights. Think about you know all of the energy that you get to use um, in our society and how wonderful that is. And then also take a moment and write a letter to an elected official and say, hey, I care about the environment. I care about climate change. I want you to make more than a symbolic change on my behalf.
1: Seth, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. No problem. Seth Wines, a PhD candidate studying individual carbon emissions at the University of British Columbia. I'll put the story up from Global News. All my Twitter at Calgary today if you want to give it a bigger uh, read. The one thing I I heard a quote actually earlier today, weirdly, everything's come full circle on today. But um, the quote essentially was whether or not you believe in climate change or want to get into that argument is almost moot. And the reason being is we should all want to have clean drinking water. We should all want to have our kids have clean air to breathe. We should all do a little bit of something. It only takes a little bit to make the world just a little bit better for now and for the future I love that idea I love that notion of hey just do a little something whether it's happiness or whether it's for the environment or whatever the case may be just just be good speaking of good the Friday chat with Matt is coming up he puts his arms in the air like victory like the Stanley Cup is his Friday chat with Matt is next here on Calgary Today it's Friday chat with Matt time. That'd be the worst thing uh, in the world, Matt. Is if I actually had to sing uh, the Matt, theme song I've, I've, for I've,
0: today. I was, I've stayed in the shower and sung my own little melody. I've been like, "It's the Friday chat with Matt." That's He's me. He's practiced it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well played, <laughs> Matt Air joining segment. us
1: for the Friday chat with Matt. Uh, Tuesday was a pretty big day in your world.
0: Yeah, uh, it was Purple Day, and. To anyone
1: who doesn't know, I have epilepsy. I had no idea until you told me like two days ago. Yeah. No uh, idea. And I mean, it's not something that you know, right? Like for those who don't know what epilepsy is, give them a little bit of a snapshot
0: oh my gosh epilepsy is so many things but I mean the big thing is that a lot of people who have epilepsy well they have seizures mm-hmm. and it, it really ranges depending on the type of epilepsy you have uh, some of them are those like big convulsing that's what I actually yeah. get I get uh, what are called the grand mal seizures uh, and some of them are those ones where you just like space out and you lose time and yeah. it's all of it's really scary actually because the one thing that people don't realize is it's literally your brain overheating just freaking out and basically shutting down for a minute, and it's scary. To, like it, it didn't dawn on me until I became a bit more of a mature adult mm. that if I don't take care of myself, one day this could just be the end of me. What brings it on for you? Uh, actually, surprisingly, uh, because of the type of epilepsy I have, which is juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, okay. it's entirely just a uh, chemical imbalance in my brain. I have to take medication. If I don't take medication for the rest of my life,
1: I am SOL. But... When was the last time you had a seizure?
0: Uh, may of last year it was really? I, it was it was my irresponsibility i okay. own up to it entirely and unfortunately i scared the bejesus out of my girlfriend mm. she and i i i don't wish upon anybody ever having to see a seizure i've never actually right. seen one myself mm. yeah. i've only been the victim of it but i have seen
1: how it devastates the people i love right and and that's the thing that i now that i know part of me is going okay, I better figure out what I need to do in case all of a sudden you're not there when you're operating my show. Then I can go, uh, someone help, please, because he's over there and I'm over here. Yeah. Right? Like, so all of a sudden it goes, there's an awareness factor that needs to go into it. And and on Tuesday, that's what it was all about, was with Purple Day. And, and you were talking about the Calgary Tower and a couple of other places being lit up just for it. Yeah, actually, it was really cool. Uh, I actually
0: worked here on Tuesday and... I was taking transit home and I passed by the Calgary tower. Cause I have to take transit from downtown and I was like, Oh cool. The Calgary Tower is lit up purple. That's really nice. It mm-hmm. made me feel kind of, it made it feel like someone was thinking about me. Right. Uh, and then as I'm taking the bus home from downtown, I passed by reconciliation bridge and it's also lit up purple. And, it was it was funny because it was like that it was that that was the night when it was like we got that like really thick the right. flurries but yep. that, they weren't doing anything they didn't stick or anything so I actually snapped a couple really nice pictures of just like purple things and okay. like I said it I I, I have to give. All of my credit to Cassidy Megan, the girl who invented mm-hmm. uh, Purple Day. She actually uh, lives in Nova Scotia. She founded it in 2008. She's, she was just a kid. Crazy. And yeah, now like uh, they're on their webpage, they have a little collage of uh, different countries celebrating Purple Day. I've got a quick list here. Australia, Zambia, New Zealand, Scotland, Mexico, Czech Republic, Saudi Arabia, China, India, Pakistan, Netherlands, Indonesia, USA, and Kenya.
1: Very cool. And I, and I think part of it, too, it goes to that point of even the quick facts on, on the Purple Day website. there are about five or 50 million people around the world living with epilepsy. So one in 100 people have it.:
0: Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating the more reading you do about it, because like a lot of people instantly assume that everybody who has epilepsy must be photosensitive. Mm-hmm. I'm not. Right. Like I, I, go to, I go to big flashy concerts all the time and I'm perfectly fine. But it was something that when I first was diagnosed, like I, I asked my doctors and I really encourage if you know someone in your life who has epilepsy, as you kind of said yourself, Joe, mm-hmm. find out what you need to do as a friend. Right. Because if, that, if it ever comes up, and I hope for you that it never does, but if it ever comes up, it's, it's really good ready. to be
1: alert and be ready. Absolutely. Great words with the Friday chat with Matt here on Calgary today. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary today.